Welcome to our American Resilience podcast hosted by the Naval Academy History Department. In our podcast, we hope to examine a small part of our American culture of toughness, and with that knowledge of our history, be able to face our unknown future with renewed confidence, knowing that we are part of a long-standing tradition of resilience in the face of adversity. There is significant worrying today on how Americans can possibly come to cope with looming climate challenges, from rising sea levels and global temperatures to the increasing prevalence of unpredictable weather patterns and disasters. We've seen so many articles, seen so many videos that make sweeping claims that Americans are spoiled, that Americans can't handle a future climate cause drop in living conditions, that we can't band together as a community, and that we just aren't prepared for the future at all. Mostly, it's rampant talk that the U.S. is simply incapable as a society of responding to looming climate threats, as if we haven't faced adversity before, or specifically climate adversity, when historically the opposite has been true. The Dust Bowl was a clear-cut climate disaster that pushed normal American families to the limits of human endurance and stress, yet it was surmounted when it came to our doorstep. Our poor agricultural practices that ignored soil stability, mixed with over-farming and an extended, unpredictable drought, to create an apocalyptic wave of crop failure and widespread death of livestock. In the 30s, clouds of fast-moving dust that covered the entire horizon swept over the plains from Texas to Nebraska, turning Americans in the middle of the Great Depression into climate refugees. By examining the specific instance of an American climate disaster, we can better come to grips with just a small facet of a shared American spirit of resilience. Here with me to discuss the Dust Bowl as it relates to American resilience in the face of disaster is Dr. Lori Bogle and Dr. Tom McCarthy, professors of American history at the United States Naval Academy, along with midshipmen Robert Sicoli, Jack Mickelson, Alana Lynch, and Elise Russell. We'll begin with the short story of one American's personal experience of the Dust Bowl. With that, I will pass the mic to Elise who will talk to us first about an example of when that tradition was called upon during the Great Depression. Here I researched a woman named Gloria Ann Myers, and she's from Port Matilda, Pennsylvania. And her husband traveled to Pennsylvania in hopes of getting a ride somewhere else to, to get work. Although she did not want him to go, he told her he had to leave, and there was no work at home. With a few cents on him, Gloria's husband hitchhiked to Virginia and lived there for a week, only to realize there was no ship he could work on, nobody was hiring. When he came back, he still had those same two cents in his pocket. How did you do it? She asked. Her husband replied, people were good. They had kitchens. The people I stayed with made me soup. He said it wasn't like mother would make at home, but I lived on it. So thanks, Elise, for the story. Now let's turn it over to Dr. Bogle and Dr. McCarthy to have an open discussion about this topic. So uh, Dr. McCarthy and Dr. Bogle, so what were, aside from the natural factors, what were some controllable human forces that contributed to the Dust Bowl? The simple answer to that question is that the Dust Bowl was caused by natural and man-made factors. Most people, I think, are aware that the Dust Bowl was very much about a drought that took place, especially on the southern Great Plains from the beginning of the 1930s, and then that persisted for much of that decade. But the man-made piece that contributed to the Dust Bowl uh, was a set of developments in agriculture that took place in the Southern Plains 
uh, beginning really about the time of the First World War. Uh, as a result of uh, European agriculture being disrupted by the war in Europe uh, and uh, uh, wheat production in particular going down in Europe and the need of those populations for imported wheat, a uh, tremendous opportunity was provided to American grain growers, including folks growing wheat on the southern plains in the United States, to dramatically increase the amount of wheat that they were growing. This was occurring at the same time that tractors, mechanization, first became affordable to American farmers. So think about the Ford Motor Company making the Model T. They're also making a companion affordable tractor, the Fordson Tractor, that folks around the country could afford to buy. And that meant that folks on the plains in particular could plow up a lot more land and plant it into wheat. This is land that previous to this time was, of course, covered by the natural grasses uh, of the Great Plains. Um, so what happens is <laughs> when the drought comes in the 1930s, after there has been an overproduction glut of growing wheat after the Second First World War, you have a lot of land that's exposed that when there's less rainfall, dries out. The uh, Great Plains of the United States... There's a steady 10 to 15 mile an hour breeze pretty much most days, so the air, air is moving. You have air moving over dry, exposed soil. Uh, you have windstorms coming along. Now the soil is exposed, and it's going to be easily taken up into the atmosphere and blown far, far, far away from its origins. So it's that combination of, yeah, natural factors, a drought, an extended period of drought, but the man-made contribution is critical. The converting of that land in the two decades before that to agriculture that really makes the Dust Bowl of the 30s possible. Uh, historians have often said that the Dust Bowl was caused by government policy but also solved by it. And I think that maybe that's too harsh of a judgment on the government because nobody really understood the Great Plains when they first started settling it and how important the sod was to hold in moisture in a semi-arid area. So I'm going to, as a historian, push it a little bit back further than Dr. McCarthy, and I would say that the, the steps toward the Dust Bowl begin in 1862 with the Homestead Act, and that will be revised in 1909, which made the Dust Bowl almost a certainty. And with the Homestead Act, uh, uh, settlers got a certain amount of acreage if they would go ahead and just have a, a small filing fee, and then they could move west. And no, and they could either be farmers or ranchers. But nobody quite, as I said, quite understood how these people, often from urban settings, would be able to farm. So they gave information to them on what to do, and they suggested to do deep plowing and to uncover the moisture of the land so that they could get through droughts, not to irrigate. You don't need to if you do these kind of things. And as Dr. McCarthy said, um, World War I really escalates the amount of acreage that's going to be plowed. And there was this belief that the rain will follow the plow, which sounds a little ridiculous now. Like you tell people, come out to the Great Plains and plow, and the rain will come. But it seemed to do that at first because in 1909, when they gave more acreage, if you went ahead and homesteaded, they had some really nice wet years after that. And it said, oh, yeah, make a ton of money. 
So you pl plow more and graze more. And then in World War I, as Dr. McCarthy said, double the price of grain, so you're going to plow more. World War I's over. The price of grain goes way down. What do you do? You plow more to make up for that loss. And pretty soon you have lots of land that ex is exposed. And then when the drought comes in 1930, one of the immediate responses to the government was to plow under crops that were growing at that moment which exposed even more soil. And then in 1931, I believe, is when the first dust storms start. And it was, uh, it just got worse. Each year was worse for a while. So leading up to that, you mentioned uh, the Homestead Act, and there was a lot of effort to actually encourage people to move here. Was it seen as like a very large opportunity? Was there some sort of mania leading up to it? Well, just to jump in on the on the Homestead Act, um, it, this goes back to the so-called Jeffersonian agricultural ideal uh, associated with Thomas Jefferson's thinking about what was in the best interest of the United States as it developed. His view was to provide as many people as possible with farms that they could own, uh, and that would ensure that the American people would be fairly egalitarian. Everybody would be a farmer. Is this kind of a similar attitude that people might have today about being homeowners, that it's central to the American dream and it was kind of similar to the – so it was kind of their American dream in that yeah, era? Yeah, uh, although very much in Jefferson's mind with a uh, political strong twist to it, uh, many people in the late 18th century believed that it was impossible to be uh, an independent political decision maker if you actually worked for somebody else. Today we call that being an employee of somebody else or a corporation. Uh, so it was very important that politically that Americans, uh, yes, yes we mean adult male Americans, be independent economically. The most straightforward way to do that was to make sure that farms were available for everyone. Now, that's one of the reasons why Jefferson went out and made the Louisiana Purchase, so that there would be plenty of potential farmland available as the size of the U.S. population grew. And, of course, that was the case. Um, and so the federal government very much was involved in a uh, political, social, economic project from the early days of taking this public land that was acquired by the federal government – and then moving it rapidly into the hands of individual Americans. For the first decades of the 19th century, the federal government was selling land, making money. It was one of the ways that the government raised money. This is in the days before there's an income tax, so the government's looking for ways to raise money. One of the things it did was sell land. And there were plenty of people who were willing to move into the interior of the country. Note, I'm leaving out the Native American part of this story. But from the standpoint of land and farming in the U.S. government, the U.S. government was in the process of pushing land cheaply onto the American people. There was a problem, though, when the line of Euro-American settlement reached the western banks of the Mississippi River. Uh, and that is a, a uh, kind of a geographical climate problem. And that is the annual amount of rain when you get to the 100th meridian drops below an average of 20 inches a year. It be, it's a semi-arid region. 
which is another way of saying it's it's not a good place for traditional American agriculture, which relies on regular rainfall. So there's a pause in the frontier of settlement moving westward because they're hitting a natural environmental barrier there. There's not enough rain to make a good go of it for farming. So one of the reasons why there's the Homesteading Act in the early 1860s is to lower the price of the federal land, actually to give it away to people who are willing to give it a go in this semi-arid region. So what they begin to do is give away allotments of 160 acres and say that you you just need to move and settle there uh, and the, the, the government will give you title to that land. So it's to help encourage people to give it a go out there in, in that region. Yeah, they originally called it the Great American Desert when they saw the Great Plains because there were no trees and the assumption was this is not farmland. So when they finally had a plow that could break through the sod, they were going, oh my goodness, this is the most fertile stuff ever. And the there's some misunderstanding sometimes about the original Homestead Act because you still needed some money to make a go of it with 160 acres, didn't quite cut it. But in 1909, when they increased it to 320, that's when you really got a lot of urban people coming, maybe without the resources to follow up. And it was just lucky for them that they had a lot of rain after that. So this was kind of a large group of Americans who were viewing it as opportunity and a good idea who may for have... For a life, yeah. For a whole life, who, are, who may, may have not been prepared for some of the hardships that were out there, at least initially. But nature must have been really mad by 1930... Because we had just entered the Great Depression, which caused suffering in a way that America had not seen before. And not only do we have this drought for 10 years, but within that dep- those Depression years, we get massive flooding on the East Coast. We get uh, tremendous fires break out in the West. And then we have the Dust Bowl. So I know the Depression has nothing to do with the causes of the Dust Bowl, per se, but to be all hit by that during one of our greatest economic uh, struggles is just horrendous. So w- with that being said, Dr. Bowe, we were talking about how Americans were kind of hit all at the same time by all, a host of just unfavorable factors. And it was just there was, wasn't really anywhere that people could go. What, what were some of the ways that some of these people showed ingenuity or resilience in the face of some of these conditions? Well, that's a really hard question because they suffered greatly, and I think it actually hurt society in in major ways. If I can just talk about what it did to marriages. Uh, During the Great Depression, uh, fewer people got married, fewer people had children, there were fewer divorces. But a lot of that was because they couldn't afford to do otherwise. If you imagine curtailing the size of your family because you couldn't feed the children you had, if you can imagine that despite maybe a... uh, a dysfunctional marriage, you can't afford to take the time to figure out how to get a divorce. And the reason we know that that was going on, because when the Depression is over, there's a rush to rectify some of those situations. Uh, the, the amazing part that I think people don't realize is uh, sometimes there are historians that will look and say it was a golden era for the family because, look, they, they uh, weren't as many divorces going on. But the desertion rate had skyrocketed. And from my own experience, both of my grandfathers, uh, my parents had not met yet, they were children, but they deserted their families because they felt so emasculated by the inability to support their families. 
So people are going through a hard time. And I always wonder about the migrants that went to uh, California. They seem to travel as families. I haven't seen any research that has really uncovered this, but perhaps the families st uh, were able to stay together better, but I don't know for sure. Just, just to build upon uh, that a little bit, I, I think the thing that most forcefully impressed me in reading the experiences of Americans during the Great Depression is the degree to which individuals personalized the responsibility for what they were going through. Uh, it's just almost incredible to me, um, especially when we're talking about uh, the intersection of the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. Here you have a, a global economic downturn, global extended the, the greatest downturn in, that we've had in modern times. Clearly not the responsibility of any single individual. Here we have a Dust Bowl, a region-wide climate-influenced event that's taken place at the same time. Clearly it wasn't caused by any single individual farmer. And yet, time and time again, we read that the first reaction of Americans who, who found themselves in economic difficulty, either without a job, not being able to find one, or in the case of the farmers in Great Plains, unable to continue to make a living for themselves and their family. They blame themselves first. They blame themselves first. To me, that's, that's incredible. All of the evidence, overwhelming evidence, is that they were not individually responsible, and yet they blame themselves. And that's what I think is so poignant about what uh, Professor Bogle is sharing about her family. And it's the same throughout the, the literature. Americans blame themselves first. And so we, there's a very interesting cultural question here, and that is, were we, Americans in the 1930s, victims of the way we thought about ourselves in relationship to the world? That we had this intense pressure on us to make sure that we were did whatever super heroic things were required to make sure that we were economically competent at, at making a living and providing for our family. And when when we weren't able to do that, continue to play that role through no no fault of our own, that we experience it so, so strongly in that way. To me, that's always been the most forceful thing uh, about the Great Depression. Perhaps the blaming, and maybe you're saying this too, is took away resilience because men did blame themselves, and women less so, though I'm sure there are examples where they did, and children even less so. It seems like the children of the Great Depression and of the Dust Bowl were the most resilient, the most able to adapt to changing conditions, the most ability to travel across the country and start a new life without major depression. It, it does seem like they were the most resilient. But it's important to point out, I'm just thinking about my own family, um, you know, I mentioned before we went on the air, also both sides of my family, both of my parents' parents had difficulties uh, in, in the Great Depression. Uh, and on my dad in particular, his dad was thrown out of work, uh, already had a bad heart, only had manual labor jobs available to him. That worsened his heart condition. And eventually uh, he died in, in the middle of the Depression. So uh, leaving a wife and four kids to try and figure out how to make ends meet and get by. Uh, and I'll tell you, you know, 
I, yeah, I agree. My my dad was resilient. He really had no choice. He was 10 years old, so he got, as kids do, they continue on with their lives and, and uh, uh, figure out what they need to do. But I can tell you, he was scarred by that experience. Losing his dad and then living in poverty in the back half of the 1930s. As an adult, he was and this is the scarring, I think, that took place, a ferociously hard worker. He could never relax. He always was focused on work. Um, yeah, and he became you know, wonderfully accomplished. He ended up getting a Ph.D., had a great career, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, to me, I observed he never had any personal hobbies, never would, would relax in personal time. He was always you know, focused on work or very active as a community volunteer, but he kind of turned that into work. And I think that was literally scarring from having gone through that um, experience as a boy, what happened to his family. Resilient, resilient as hell, but still even you pay a price. Everybody was scarred by the Depression. It wasn't something... I guess you could say it builds character to suffer, and that's all true. But uh, my dad was about the same age as your father, it sounds like. And when his father left and died, but left, he was the oldest male. He was 10 years old and had to support the family. He had some sisters. His mother didn't go to work because it was it was seen as inconceivable that she would. Yeah. She was a Southern woman. It, there was a loss of face, a loss of status uh, for women to have to go go to work, and it was just important to be home with the children, to be taking care of uh, the kids and fulfilling that role successfully. Americans who lived through the Depression and the ways what they experienced and the ways in which they they had to cope to get through the period um, is there was a lot of uh, generosity in, in America. There was, I think, a stronger local tradition of people reaching out and uh, helping one another j just simply for the joy of helping each other, a kind of pay-it-forward sort of generosity uh, that was more common at the time. And though I, so I think people did, you know, not universally, of course, but did pay attention to others in their community, not just family members who were struggling. And um, particularly if the, if the people were um, trying to respond to their challenges by, uh, you know, if you're a 10-year-old boy in your family going out and get a, getting a job to, uh, to help bring income into your family, people would respond to that in generous ways. So we don't want to uh, paint, I think, an, an overly inaccurate picture. These people just kind of went in themselves and as, you know, rugged individuals figured out what they needed to do and just did it all by themselves. They did a lot of that because that's, that's the, the positive flip side of that tendency to blame themselves for circumstances that were beyond their control. They could go in and find stuff, but they also found neighbors and friends and community members willing to extend a helping hand. The other thing that's important, and Professor Bogle has alluded to it here, what they also b began to find as the 1930s went on 
uh, and the federal government got more involved in trying to help, if not solve, many of these problems, they also found a helping hand available in a variety of ways from the government. So in a sense, these folks are going through an incredibly hard time, an exceptionally hard time historically, but they have some cultural resources, individual initiative to draw upon, but they also have local resources in folks who are generous and willing to lend a helping hand, but increasingly also helping hands being lent by the the federal government. Professor Bogle is right. One of the big helping hands, less in the 30s, but certainly once the war comes, is the U.S. military, which really provides a an opportunity leg up. Not that many young men had a lot of choice about whether they were in the in the military during the war, but uh, when we think about the GI Bill being offered to a lot of these young men who were boys suffering these experiences during the Great Depression, uh, and they serve in the war, and they come back from the war, and they have this big thank you for your service from the U.S. government in the form of the GI Bill. That was a tremendous, tremendous help in getting, well, in making the greatest generation the contributors that they became uh, in their adulthood after the war. be amiss, though, if we didn't recognize that this is a white story. Whites were thanked. Whites had the opportunities. It wasn't even across the board. And if we go back to the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, uh, and even the GI Bill after World War II, blacks were often denied. Now, FDR, it's during his administration where the uh, African-Americans switch as a block to voting for Democrats rather than Republicans. And sometimes if you look back at history, it's hard to understand why that happened. I do understand uh, what one of the things that FDR did is he did allow for New Deal aid to go to blacks, and that meant a lot. But uh, the Democratic Party kind of turned their backs on blacks in the sense of all these various alphabet programs that were created to remedy the problems that were created by the Depression and the Dust Bowl often had in its legislation that it would be administered by local officials. And the reason it said that is that the South would not vote for the New Deal legislation unless that was included because they planned on segregating opportunities and eliminating opportunities for blacks. And so it's not an even story, and uh, we got to remember that. For example, the Federal Housing Administration, it often outright, not even at the local level, but refused to uh, loan money to insure mortgages for African-Americans because they said their neighborhoods were less valuable and not a good financial investment. So redlining starts with this, uh, the idea that you have a map and you draw and say, okay, these are the black neighborhoods. That's the least smart investment to make, so we won't loan money to those people. And the next group would be these are where there are blacks and whites that live near each other, which were prevalent prior to redlining. And that's not as good of an investment because there are blacks there. And here's a white neighborhood. If it's too close to the black neighborhood, we don't like it. And so people started segregating more and more and more because of New Deal programs. So the New Deal is wonderful. And my parents said, you know, they would love FDR until they died because he saved them, um, according to their way of looking at it. But looking back as a historian, I would say, well, that they, he saved white people. 
and African Americans might have another thing to say about it. Of course, and Dr. Bogle, would you say that um, in these hardships that we we saw we saw not only Americans who were incredibly resilient and your stories of uh, of parents who really kind of embodied this American spirit of just resilience in the face of all odds. We also, as, as you all are describing, we also seem to have taken a little bit of a step back in many ways. And is that, is that common to disasters? And was it common in other ways in the story of the Dust Bowl? Well, I guess uh, what I think about that is that there is an opportunity, perhaps, in every disaster, there's an opportunity to make change. And during the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, I guess there was an opportunity that women's rights could have been elevated. The problem with that, however, is that women themselves wanted the traditional gender roles that were prevalent then. So it's all on your point of view. So as a person that studies women's history, I would say that it was a step back because the opportunities weren't capitalized on. But I have to be a realist and see at that time period, women didn't think differently. It's hard to impose on them thinking of today, present-mindedness. The legislation often, like I said, indicated that if a husband got a job, the woman lost hers, et cetera. And with that kind of legislation, it was really hard for there to be radical changes. World War II will bring radical changes in women's employment. And for the duration of the war, people were willing to set aside their traditional gender roles to help us win the war. But during the Great Depression, it was how can we save American men from being emasculated? Our strength as a nation is more than just our weapons. It's also on on our manpower, our masculinity. And it seemed to be under threat during the Great Depression. So if it was that way back in the era of the Dust Bowl, if there were to be a similar disaster today with our new, new, new ideals and our new ideologies where we wouldn't we wouldn't tolerate something like FHA discriminating against certain groups or neighborhoods. Would the response and resilience look different in the modern day? Well, are you sure about that, that we wouldn't discriminate? I'm, I'm not, actually. Okay. But I, I don't have the answer to that. But Historians are always hesitant to kind of speculate, <laughs> make predictions uh, uh, about the future. Although, uh, certainly, uh, I I think most of us would agree that American culture has evolved in the last 90 years. Uh, And and so if we encountered something similar today, there's a very strong likelihood that our response would be different than it was uh, during the 1930s. I suppose my my own view is that our culture has evolved, especially over the last 40 years or so, where we tend to look at group responses to big problems versus individual responses, literally at the level of the individual, as being mutually exclusive categories, that those two responses are at war with one another. And, And as I look Back at the Depression, 1930s, the Dust Bowl, uh, it's very clear to me, and and this is a bit of what I was describing a few minutes ago, in the minds of Americans back then, those two types of responses were not mutually exclusive. And in fact, I think one of the great things about living in America at that time was that you could use your individual initiative. You were supposed to have it, right? It was rewarded by generosity of your, your neighbors in your community and in some ways, your your national government 
by the time we get out of the 30s and into the 1940s with the GI Bill. And I really wonder whether our the tendency in our culture would be to to say that Americans are much better off when when you know they have both of those things active in their lives rather than having to choose one or the other. It's to me, it's a false choice. So I think it's a very interesting question if we had that kind of catastrophe to, to see how that would play out. But we are going through some catastrophes right now with climate change and with the COVID um, pandemic. And it seems like uh, our country is more divided than ever. Back in the Depression, people tended, while it's mainly a, a white response, that they're getting the aid more than blacks and Hispanics and Native Americans and other groups. There was a common goal into surviving this hardship. And so some obstacles, some political obstacles could be overcome, even though there were, were political divisions during the Depression that uh, in some ways are, are similar to some of the stuff that's happening today. So if our country is hit by a, enough hardship, I almost could guarantee that we'll pull together. I don't think we've hit that moment yet. So, Dr. Bogle, when you, when you say that we would pull together, I mean, some of what Dr. McCarthy was saying is that right now it seems that there's not— that there is an expectation of a group response, but maybe there's not the same individualism that would go hand in hand, that sometimes they're seen as at odds with each other. So when you say that we would pull together as a country, what what do you kind of mean by that? Like, what would that look like in a modern day, or what would you expect? It seems no one questioned that there was a Dust Bowl. No one questioned that we were going through a Great Depression. The difference is we don't have the same definitions of what the obstacles are in our future. We first have to define together what the problem is. So once our nation, 75% or so, can agree on what the common goal is, we can do great things. Right now, we just don't have that definition down. Dr. Bowen, do you think that whenever we get that definition down that you, you may see more individual response in addition to some of the group reactions, would would we potentially maybe see more of that if we were just at more of a consensus? Is it more of a product of how divided we are ideologically right now? We probably are having individual and, and group responses right now, but it's so partisan at the same time. But within both parties, I think that is happening. Um, yeah, and uh, just thinking about this more, I, w- I wonder whether uh, both the... Uh, uh, sense of individual initiative, um, uh, at least the wherewithal and skills within individuals, as well as our inclination and ability to come together as a team, I wonder whether both of those qualities in our culture have attenuated over the last 90 years, become harder, maybe on average for us to summon, let alone summon them together at the same time to draw on maybe equally in in our difficulties. To my mind, those are open questions at the moment, questions that are open in my mind in comparison to this period that we're talking about in the 1930s. I guess a good example would be about climate change and how there are people that think it's real and people that think it isn't and probably people in between. But uh, one of the solutions that's, uh, we need lots of solutions to it, but one of them is to recreate the Civilian Conservation Corps, but to call it the Civilian Climate Corps. 
and it's been put into legislation and how we could have youth go out and do different things to prevent soil erosion and fight forest fires and whatever needs to be. But because we don't have a we don't agree that climate change is real, it's just going to stall. I mean, it's part of legislation right now. It may not even get passed. So until you know what the, let's call it the enemy, until you know who the enemy is, you, it, you can't really unite. Now, if this did become a real thing, this, the Civilian Climate Corps, it's both individual and a government response. The government responds by making the opportunity for individuals to take advantage or be patriotic, whichever way you want to look at it, and do their part individually to help. But uh, we, again, I want to reiterate, you have to know what the goal is. You have to have a common definition of what the problem is. Well, Dr. Bogle and Dr. McCarthy, thanks so much for being on our podcast. It's extremely fascinating. I feel like I learned a lot about the Dust Bowl and about some of the features of American resilience and why our society takes the way that it does and why it might take that same way again. So thank you so much for your time, and thanks for allowing us to record you and have us on our show. Our pleasure. Thank you. I thought that episode went super well. I loved our guests. I thought they said some really cool stuff. I was really fascinated by what they had to say. What did you guys think? I liked it, too. I learned a lot of new things that I didn't previously know about the Great Depression or Dust Bowl. So I'm definitely going to have to do some more research and learn some more. Yeah, I always like hearing experts talk organically about these sort of topics because it gives you a new perspective that reading out of a textbook or just watching some video online doesn't necessarily provide. Um, So I enjoyed my time here listening to what they had to say. Yeah, I just loved hearing it. I mean, I loved thinking about it and listening to it. I I thought it was, like you said, it was way better than a YouTube video. It It was so cool to hear what they had to say on their topics. I mean, they're really experts in their fields and be really excited to have another episode. This is Elise. This is Alana. And this is Robert, and we'll see you next time on American Resilience.